Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria was created in 2002 as a partnership between governments, philanthropies, and civil society. At the time, these three diseases were completely out of control, killing millions of people each year and with no end in sight. Seventeen years later, thanks in large part to the Global Fund, we can imagine the end of AIDS, TB, and malaria. Deaths from these three diseases have declined precipitously. Instances of infection have also declined, though it should be pointed out not as sharply as mortality rates. In all, some 32 million lives have been saved through the Global Fund, which is essentially a pool of money that is strategically dispersed in select countries to reduce instances and deaths from these three diseases. Now, the way this money is raised is from contributions from donors, the most significant of which are countries. And in late October in Lyon, France, the Global Fund held a pledging conference in which it sought to raise a minimum of $14 billion to cover its operations over the next three years. And as my guest today, Peter Sands, explains, it was something of a nail-biter in Lyon as to whether or not they would hit that goal. Peter Sands is the executive director of the Global Fund, and in this conversation, he takes us behind the scenes at that donor conference and explains more broadly how the Global Fund works. We discuss the unique contributions of the Global Fund to progress against those three diseases and why of those diseases, tuberculosis has been the most difficult to confront. If you are listening to this episode contemporaneously, it is likely the last episode of the year that you will hear. I want to wish you a very happy new year. I have some exciting announcements coming up about the podcast in 2020. I can't make them yet, so you'll have to stay tuned. If you are new to the show, please do subscribe to the full feed of the podcast where you can unlock hundreds of episodes that give in-depth treatment to ideas and issues and parts of the world that don't often get covered by more conventional media outlets. Also, this is a great episode to pair with this show's sponsor, which is Northwestern University's online master's degree program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And hopefully this conversation will inspire you to want to get that global health master's degree program. And if you're interested, you can also just email me and I'm happy to put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern directly. All right, now here is my conversation with Peter Sands, Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. 
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I've always wondered how far ahead of time do uh, organizations like yourself, did did you know that you were going to reach that $14 billion target? About five minutes before we went on stage to announce no. that we had oh, come on you didn't you didn't you didn't pre-write those uh, press releases <laughs> well we, we we had written press releases for if we had hit it or the more difficult ones if we had missed it so we had pre-planned for various scenarios uh but it was a very real-time event with uh last minute pledges happening literally as we were preparing to go back on stage to announce the results of the conference. Um, That that sounds like there's some drama. There was some drama. There was some real drama. Uh, We were were several hundred million short when we started the morning of 10th of October, the day of the replenishment. Um, And uh, earlier that week, it would be nearer a billion short. Um, And so it was all quite nail-biting. And so what happened at the last minute? How did you cross those thresholds? Well, a few things happened. Um, first, uh, President Macron um, was extraordinary in his determination to get to the target. And he basically worked the phone, phone picking up and talking to various presidents, heads of government um, around the world, uh, seeing if he could persuade them to put a bit more on the table. Um, and then... He and Bill Gates both decided that they would each put up an incremental 60 million, so 120 in total, um, plus some of these last-minute contributions we had from various parts of the world, uh, got us to 14.028 billion. That's interesting. It's interesting that Macron himself would personally get involved here. I think that probably speaks to the political value of having France and Lyon host this, uh, the conference itself. Yes. I, I mean, he was quite extraordinary. I mean, he started the day with a speech in which he basically said, we have to get a 14 billion. I'm going to lock the doors of this room until we get to 14 billion and said, you know, some countries have done really well, but he, he actually called out some countries, which he then was signaling. He said, I'm going to be calling on you. I, yeah, I see scope um, uh, for you to do more. Uh, now that was sort of him on the day, but uh, uh, in the months before, uh, because he had first got involved in January when we launched the investment case. And in the period through from January through to October, uh, the whole French diplomatic network was mobilized to help us in our advocacy in various different parts of the world. Uh, and it, it was very impressive, the support we had from France. And and what's your role in all this? I mean, you know, you're the leader of this, you know, crucially important, you know, international organization meant to, you know, fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. But you yourself are not a political power player necessarily in the same way that, say, the president of France is. 
No, I, I suppose my role is to make sure that people understand what the need is. And we had an investment case that actually worked really well. Very few people challenged the logic of why 14 billion, at least 14 billion was what we needed, because I think the investment case was was sufficiently compelling about the need. Uh, but also then to convince people that we are going to spend the money well, um, that taxpayers' money is going to be invested to uh, maximum impact. Uh, and so I spent a lot of my time explaining how we work, what we do, um, how we really uh, will use the incremental funds, because this is a bigger amount of money than we've ever had, uh, to change the trajectory of the epidemics, save more lives, reduce the rate of infections, and thus accelerate the end of the epidemics. And, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but the United States was the single biggest donor this time around. Is that correct? And historically has been the single biggest donor. Correct. The U.S. Um, uh, provides a third of the uh, funding of the Global Fund. And indeed, congressional legislation means that it cannot provide more than a third. And in fact, that that legislation actually creates a great incentive for other donors because we were in a position after Congress marked up a bill um, for um, a 15.6% increase, essentially saying that the U.S. would support a third of $14 billion, we could go to other donors and say, if the rest of the world doesn't step up as well, we will be leaving US money on the table, because the US can't provide more than a third of the global funds funding. And what's interesting about that from like the domestic political perspective here is that, you know, it, it, there is broad, it's one of, one of the few remaining things that does have bipartisan support still. I mean, even when Congress was controlled by Republicans, you had that sort of one third uh, ceiling. Correct. And indeed, what we saw um, this year in both the Senate and the House is very strong bipartisan support, um, uh, which was fantastic. Um, and I think it reflects the uh, the history of the Global Fund. I mean, George W. Bush was very much involved in the original genesis of um, the Global Fund, and it has attracted support from, uh, as I said, both sides um, throughout. And it's not unique to the United States, actually. I mean, if you look at the UK, which is the second largest uh, donor, you will find very strong support for the Global Fund from both uh, of the major parties and in indeed across the political spectrum. Which is good because we're speaking the morning after the the big election in uh, in in the UK. So uh, th that is though it, it, an interesting uh, wrinkle, in fact, that I've seen across the global development space that conservative and and labor parties have both been equally um, uh, supportive of global development issues more broadly. Yeah, and I think one thing we have a couple of things sort of in our favor. One is. Uh, and I say this as somebody relatively new, so I'm not sort of um, blowing my trumpet. The Global Fund does have an extraordinary record of impact. Uh, the sort of the the quantum, the cumulative total of life saves is now reckoned to be over 32 million, and the model works, and it works very effectively to um, deliver impact in coordination with uh, our partners. And it, when it comes down to it, nothing is more convincing to donors then real demonstration that the money is going to be used so, well. So can we talk a little more detail about that model and about how the Global Fund works? I mean, since its advent in 2002, what has been the Global Fund's key um, 
key driver of success? How, how are you, how's, how has the global fund been able to succeed or advance targets against AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria? I think um, I'd highlight uh, perhaps four things. Uh, one is simply that we're completely focused on outcomes. Um, the whole discussion at the Global Fund is around, um, are we saving lives? Are we reducing the rate of infections? And everything else becomes sort of a means to that end. But we are completely, totally focused on that. The second thing that's really important is that the model is country-led. We are not sitting in Geneva trying to work out what to, what to do. We have what we call country-coordinating mechanisms in the country, which actually work out what are the programs that they want us to fund. We then go through a complicated process of sort of negotiation and development of those programs, uh, but it is country-led. The third critical aspect is the pervasive involvement of civil society. There is no multilateral, certainly not in the global health space, and to my knowledge anywhere else in a development, that has quite as intense an involvement of civil society from the board in Geneva all the way through the, to the country coordinating mechanisms. Civil society is involved in decision-making at every point. To put it another way, there isn't, I don't think there are many organizations in the world where there is a board seat for affected communities which has the same voting power as the United States. Um, mm. So civil society, and then the last thing is that the Global Fund has kept on evolving and innovating and adapting. And one example of this is that when, when the Global Fund was created, it was primarily as a response to what was then a catastrophe and an emergency around AIDS in Africa. As we have evolved and we have brought down the death tolls from AIDS, TB, and malaria, fundamentally halving them, um, the focus has shifted to being not just about saving lives. Of course, we're still very, very focused on saving lives, but also about ending the epidemics, reducing the rates of infection, improving prevention, which when the Global Fund first was created was just sort of was a bridge too far at that stage. It was just simply stopped so many people dying. So we've evolved quite a lot and we've developed lots of different models for working with partners, the private sector, um, regional grants, dealing with issues like refugees, all sorts of sort of variants on the model as we have um, progressed. Can you maybe dial this down a little bit and provide an example um, of programs that are supported through the Global Fund that work towards the ends that, that you just described, both of reducing, reducing deaths related to AIDS, TB, and malaria, but also reducing incidents? Like, what does this look like on, on the ground? Okay, well, if I take HIV, for example, one of the big triumphs of the AIDS response and PEPFAR and the Global Fund were the big drivers of this, were the scale up of the provision of antiretroviral treatment to people who are HIV positive. We do not have a cure for AIDS, but we can enable people to lead healthy, productive lives, have children, have jobs, and so on, through providing antiretroviral treatment. And if that treatment is well provided, the virus is suppressed, and they will not then infect other people. However, we are also doing a whole uh, range of activities around what you might call primary prevention. And to give an example of what that can look like, um, 
one of the communities that is most at risk to HIV infection is actually adolescent girls and young women in Africa. Um, and that's a, a function of deep structural gender inequalities, uh, gender-based violence, educational disadvantage, economic disempowerment. And so the programs that have to um, be, ha they have to reach beyond the narrowly biomedical. Um, so we're supporting girls to stay in school. We're helping them in becoming economically viable. Um, we're, we're trying to deal with some of the broader contextual um, challenges these young women face. Um, and likewise, um, some of the populations most at risk of HIV face human rights-related barriers um, to, to accessing health services. If you're somebody who injects drugs, and that's criminalized in a country, um, it's a little difficult for you to get uh, treatment. So we also work on those kinds of things. So it's, I should it's, say, just, just to, to interrupt you there for a second, years ago, it was probably about eight years ago, nine years ago, I visited a global fund supported uh, site for injecting drug users in uh, Bangladesh, in, in the city of Chittagong in, in, in Bangladesh, I believe. And um, as you said, it was a place where, um, you know, they could get some information about HIV AIDS because, you know, while Bangladesh does not have a very high HIV AIDS rate overall, it is very high among injecting drugs drug users. So this was sort of like a local NGO that was supported by the Global Fund that was able to be like a resource for people who are injecting drug users, get them treatment, but also give them information about, you know, safer practices, which is sort of an interesting and, and unique thing to see. Yeah, and that's a good example of the the role civil society plays in the model, because in when you're dealing with key populations, like people who inject drugs or um, in some countries, you know, men who have sex men who have sex with men are criminalized, or transgender, or right. sometimes you sex workers too, right? Sex workers too. Often, governments are not very uh, adept um, at um, reaching out to and being inclusive to such communities. And civil society plays a critical role. NGOs do um, in in helping us reach out to understand the needs of. And, and serve uh, these populations who, as you say, are often much more vulnerable. I mean, that's HIV. I mean, if you take um, uh, malaria, for example, uh, the Global Fund is uh, the largest funder of malaria programs in the world by some distance. Um, we are 60% of all external assistance. And that would include everything from we buy over 130 million uh insecticide impregnated bed nets a year so to protect families as they sleep um, but also diagnostics treatments uh, we fund health workers reaching out to remote uh, communities um, and one's one has to support a range of these different types of activities to provide a sort of coherent and comprehensive response um, to the epidemic. So, so can I ask, if you look at AIDS, TB, and malaria, you know, there's been progress uh, across all three of them, but progress has been perhaps slowest with tuberculosis. Why, why is that? Well, TB, um, you're right to start with. I mean, TB has gone from being the, <laughs> not the biggest of the three in terms of uh, mortality, but to being the one that is now killing most of 
most people, basically because we've made faster progress with the other two. Um, now, why is it? Well, TB has always been, uh, you might call it, say, the kind of the poor cousin, the unfashionable disease. Um, uh, HIV AIDS has had much more concerted uh, sponsorship, investment, political leadership, celebrity championing. Um, malaria has had deep support, um, often among faith-based communities and other NGOs. And, and given that malaria primarily kills uh, children under the age of five um, and pregnant women, it's not difficult to get people motivated around um, supporting interventions against malaria. TB kills the absolute sort of poorest, most marginalized, more men than women, um, and in many donor nations, the rich nations of the world, people tend to think TB is something that went a long time ago. Um, uh, and, and people don't tend to recognize um, uh, the scale of it. Indeed, one of our biggest challenges with TB is simply getting people diagnosed and treated in the first place. We, do, we have cures. Um, we can cure people with TB, but we have to find them, um, treat them um, uh, before we can cure them. The other reason we, we do need to up our game against TB, and, and I've been putting quite a lot of attention since I've joined the Global Fund on TB because I, I see it as the one where we need the sharpest change in trajectory. The other reason is because if you want to think about threats to global health security, then multidrug-resistant TB, or MDR-TB as it is known, is really pretty scary. MDR-TB... Um, is roughly as fatal as Ebola, much more contagious because you breathe the, um, it's carried by uh, uh, airborne water particles. So you don't actually have to touch somebody. Um, and roughly speaking, about half a million people in the world have it. Um, so it's, it's a. And it's, it's TB a, that's not susceptible to the regular regimen of, of medicines, basically. Yeah, most, most TB is relative it can be treated with relatively cheap medicines although it's quite a long and um, not very pleasant treatment process um, mdr tb requires much more powerful combinations of drugs much greater side effects much and with much greater risk of failure and thus death um, so mdr tb is a pretty um nasty um uh thing and we need as a global health community to have a more effective response because at the moment only about a quarter of the people who get mdr tb are effectively diagnosed and treated um so we are speaking just you know a few months a couple months after the replenishment conference uh that will replenish your funds for the next three years um what will your strategy be? What sort of new investments can we look forward from the Global Fund over the, the coming years with this, these uh, stemming from this replenishment? Well, the first thing to say is that the success of the replenishment means that we have more funds to invest. Um, on average, our allocations to countries for the next investment cycle, which runs the implementation years will be 2021, 22, 23. 
So 2020 is the last year of the current cycle. Um, the the incremental funds will be about 23%. The funds will be about 23% higher um, than they were in the current cycle. Um, across the diseases, there's a whole range of things that are going to be different, some reflecting the fact that we've got more resources, some new medicines and technologies. But to, but to give you some of the things we're really looking to scale up, first, in HIV, we have to scale up prevention and particularly prevention among adolescent girls and young women. If we do not reduce the numbers who are getting infected, it's roughly a 1,000 a day getting infected. We will not end the epidemic. And what sort of new strategies will you be investing in for prevention? Well, it's a combination of using um, the latest technologies, um, whether it's PrEP, self-testing, um, and newer combination therapies that are coming down, but also these broader multi-sectoral um, interventions that address some of the underlying gender inequalities that are putting young women in the position where they become more vulnerable um, to infection. On malaria, we're, we're really focused on the highest burden places in the world, uh, very much uh, Central Africa, DRC, Nigeria, the Sahel, um, and concentrated innovation interventions, not just to save lives, but to reduce the number of cases. Because the challenge we have in those places is that we've been making good progress saving lives every year, but the numbers of cases have actually been going up. And then on TB, there's basically two things we need to do. One is we need to be finding what we sort of in shorthand call the missing cases those people with TB who haven't even been diagnosed or treated. And the big, the big thing there is switching from passive waiting for somebody to turn up sick in a clinic to actively going out and finding people in the communities most at risk. And then the other aspect, which we touched on briefly before, is ensuring a scale-up um, of treatment of people with MDR-TB, the multidrug-resistant um, version. Uh is there, so, but before I, I uh, sign off here, is there anything else you'd want to add? You want to make sure we, we get in or discuss or, or mention? Well, I think a couple of things. One is one other thing I'd mention in terms of what you'll be seeing from us is to make all this happen, you actually have to invest in the underlying systems. We are the largest multilateral provider of grants to health systems, whether that's supply chain, disease surveillance systems, community health workers, primary health care clinics, diagnostic labs, and so on, because you need all those component parts to be working to be able to deliver the disease-specific interventions. But the, I think the thing I would close on is that we are acutely conscious that we're at a crunch point in the fight against these diseases. We have more resources than we've ever had before. Actually, the replenishment was the single biggest fundraising for global health ever, that's incredibly exciting in that it gives us the opportunity to shift the trajectory of these diseases towards the 2030 goal of ending the epidemics by 2030. But it's also a daunting responsibility. We have to get it right. We have to work with all the partners we work with in a way that maximizes the impact on lives saved and affections averted. Uh, well, Peter Sands, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you very much. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Peter Sands. That was great. Very happy to have uh, caught up with him. And I was serious about that, that initial question. I'm always curious to learn ahead of these big international pledging donor conferences if the entities actually know if they're going to hit their goals or not. And I was kind of surprised to learn that it was uh, kind of a last-minute wrangling and dialing for dollars on the part of Emmanuel Macron. That, that kind of made the difference. Very interesting. Um, also, we have some advertising spots available in the coming uh, couple of months. If you're interested in securing some of those, please send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'll tell you more. Thanks. Bye.